I give this advice all the time. If you're lost or confused as a creative, the only way out is to create through it. That's it. I think that's, that's, you know, scary advice, but it is the truth. Like we, the one thing we never stopped doing, if you look back at the past five years on the channels, we just never stopped uploading. We just didn't, we just kept making, even in the lowest of lows, like that was the thing that we will do no matter what. And we just kept creating. In this episode, I talked to Samir of Colin Samir fame from the YouTube channel. Uh, they have built a really interesting business and uh, it's been fun to get to know them recently. They're in the process of switching over their newsletter to ConvertKit actually. In this episode, we talk about flywheels. We talk about how they built and structured their whole business. Um, what drives revenue? It's mostly sponsorships. Um, and then we get into storytelling and uh, really at, at the end, we would talk about like designing their perfect day, what's driving growth on YouTube, and so much more. Quick little backstory before we dive in. So Colin and Samir both played lacrosse uh, in high school, and they actually uh, ended up meeting through a uh, through lacrosse videos that they were both uploading online. And then they over time, they built a YouTube channel about lacrosse. They turned it into basically uh, you know an online TV network about lacrosse that was acquired. And then after that, they spent a couple of years uh, at the company that acquired them, uh, and then they went out and decided to make you know new content specifically for creators. So they've got a show, they've got a newsletter, a bunch of different stuff. Um, but it's just a fun story of someone, well, two people really shining in a specific niche, and then uh, from there taking what they learned and serving the broader community with it. So I'll get out of the way. I think you'll enjoy the episode. Uh, but before I do, go ahead and write a review. If you could write a review on Spotify, iTunes, you know, wherever you're listening, I would appreciate that. Uh, and then maybe tell someone else about the podcast. Over the the last handful of episodes, we've had a lot of growth and that's fun. And it kind of reminds me that like, in addition to doing the show, I need to drive growth for it. So uh, it's good. It's fun to see the numbers go up, fun to hear, you know, more people tuning in and listening. So uh, yeah, with that, I'll get out of the way. Enjoy this interview with Samir. Samir, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. All right, so I want to start with, uh, I was watching one of your interviews that you did with Lily Singh, mm -hmm. and she talks about this moment where she's over at another YouTuber's house for the first time, and he talks about how he's like, yeah, I bought this house with YouTube money, and like it rocks her world, breaks the mold of like what she thought was possible. So I'm wondering um, for you and Colin, or you in particular, was there a moment where you were like kind of that mind blown, like, wait. I can actually do this. I can build a business, you know, any of those kind of things. Anything stand out for you? Yeah, it's a good question. I think what's interesting is I can more remember the moment where I was like, whoa, this might be impossible, um, <laughs> which is, you know, back in 2011, when I had graduated college, I, I took to YouTube to start uploading videos about lacrosse, which is the yep. sport I played. And, you know, I had this, this big dream that we could create a modern day sports network about lacrosse. And I had talked to some people who worked at YouTube because I went to school in, in Northern California. And, you know, that what I kind of understood was you upload videos to YouTube and then YouTube pays you. And there's people making millions of dollars on YouTube. Uh, again, this is 2011. So there was actually only a few stories like that. Yep. But I was pretty quick to believe that that, that was possible. And I remember uploading and uploading and, and getting into the partner program. And then the first time it showed estimated revenue, and it was like 43 cents. And 
I remember the moment of taking a step back and being like, whoa, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. Um, so I'd say like, I remember that inverse moment very well. Mm-hmm. I think what was interesting was from then it was a gradual experience of, you know, finding our way to revenue and making it a career was very different from us than it was for other creators. Creator like Lily Singh was pretty quick to having like a, a large appeal and to um, reaching, you know, a, a mass audience. We were in a niche audience, a very small niche audience that didn't really have a culture of advertising or video advertising. And mm-hmm. so the way we monetized at first was doing like creative projects, like building websites for people. And, um, you know, we even designed stickers for a lacrosse company. Like we were just doing any creative project and using our YouTube channel as lead gen. It wasn't until years and years later when advertising revenue on the channel through sponsorships became a real factor. Okay. So with the the lacrosse YouTube channel, you're saying it was lead gen for an agency basically, and not even like an official, Essentially, agency, yeah. like, a, like a scrappy, we'll do anything for you kind of agency. That's exactly right. It was just like you know, the only way people could understand it in 2011, especially in sports, where sports media was was saved for television, right? Like it was, that was TV. It was not what was happening on YouTube. And I, I think for us, it was just people looking at us being like, these guys can make good videos. That was basically it. And then people would come to us and say, oh, if you can make videos, we assume you could take photos and we assume you could do graphic design. And, you know, that's that's exactly right. It was It was just a top of funnel for people to understand our creative talents. And for us, we just needed to keep the lights on so we could keep uploading YouTube videos. Now, was there, what was the point when it actually worked to start getting uh, sponsorships? Was it a certain number of viewers or was it more like a certain level of business acumen on your part or connections? Yeah, I think there was a certain level of, you know, business acumen that had to come from us understanding how the media business worked. Um, and also developing like a menu of products that people could buy and understanding what the market wanted to buy from us. Sponsorships was just not one of those things for a long time. Yeah. Until, you know, there was a level of audience, a level of brand and um, the, the like a hot word, I think in our space, but like, to be honest, it was community. I think mm-hmm. once people started to recognize that there was a regular set of people watching who were willing to do what you know, when we said, hey, let's all do this thing, then they would all do that thing. And recognizing that we were becoming community leaders in our niche community, I think is when people started to take notice and brands took us seriously because we we knocked on the doors of a lot of brands, including Nike, including Under Armour, um, you know, walking into their office saying, we are the hub for this. You guys have invested in lacrosse. You have lacrosse equipment. Mm-hmm. We have that audience. And I don't think anyone took it seriously until we started doing certain community initiatives where we would, you know, say, hey, we're all going to post about this on this day. And then all of a sudden you'd see every lacrosse player, you know, posting a, a certain picture or a certain campaign on one day on Instagram or on Twitter. And like, I think that's when it becomes very loud in a in a small community when everyone is doing the same thing. And there's one singular, you know, leader of the pack. Okay, so break that down because I think a lot of people, you know, take the advice of like, be the big fish in the small pond, you know, choosing your niche, you know, that. but you're talking about mm-hmm. a specific strategy to be a lot more vocal in that space. So what were you doing to like get people to rally behind that one thing and, and demonstrate that you were the leader there? I think what we recognized was in any community, you, you want to feel 
less alone, right? Like you want to feel mm-hmm. that there's people like you. And I felt that as being a member of the lacrosse community, there was not very many people here in Los Angeles who wanted to talk about lacrosse, who wanted to, mm-hmm. you know, share ideas about lacrosse, who wanted to get excited about something that happened in lacrosse. So the internet is really what opened up that door and, and created a situation where we could have that collective conversation. Now, I think what a lot of people need in a community is guidance on what to talk about or how to talk about it. And so we really, I, I would say it's like kind of when Instagram launched, we used to do it on YouTube, but we would just issue, you know, ideas uh, about what to post about or actually do call outs. Like when it started snowing, we just asked people to send us photos of them playing lacrosse in the snow. And, mm. you know, all of a sudden people were sending us pictures. So you started to realize like constraints are super helpful for communities to increase inter- interactions and, and engagement is just saying, hey, on this week, we're all talking about this. Or we're all posting photos about this. Now you can actually go around and whether it's through a hashtag or just, you know, through being a part of that community in the comments of a YouTube video, start to engage with others who are like you. Um, and I think today, you know, 10 years, 11 years later, we're seeing that happen on Discord. We're seeing it happen through Reddit communities. We're seeing it happen in all different facets of, of the internet. But, you know, at that early stage, I think that's what we recognized was we went quickly from thinking, oh, we're a television network on the internet to we are actually community leaders and tribe leaders uh, right. that are programming conversation, interaction, engagement uh, for this, this group of people. That's super interesting of getting people to take the same action and demonstrate like, hey, I'm a part of this community or even just this is what we're talking about this week. Is there an example of how you do that with, you know, the Colin Samir show now that we're doing mm-hmm. that like, same concept? Yeah, I think, you know, for us, we we like to think about everything we do with with the Colin and Samir channel, like we're um, we're curating, you know, what's happening in the creator world because there's a lot, there's an abundance yeah. of information which means there's a scarcity of attention. And so for us, we are you know, zoning in on what you should be attentive to. And then more importantly, why that matters to people like us. And this concept of people like us is always been an, imp- an important part of our career from the beginning. You know, In lacrosse, it was, hey, you are people like us. We are people like us. Um, mm-hmm. you know, this is a collective group of people who all share the same identity and same um, things that we're excited about. In the creator world, I think there, you know, was a a void of of a of a voice of what is the thing we should all care about right now, and how can we talk about this and 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 share um, excitement around it. And so, through our our weekly show on Monday, you know, we pick a topic that we feel is, you know, the biggest topic of the week in our opinion. Um, we'll talk about it. We'll break it down, and we'll we'll talk about why it matters, and we'll we'll see you know, conversation in the comments of the YouTube video. We'll see conversation in our DMs. We'll see conversation in on Twitter. And, you know, for us, of course, that's not like we are not the single source in our space of what people are talking about, but we want to be the space where people can come and say, I heard a lot about that thing. Why does it matter to people like us, to people like me and coming to Colin and Samir to understand a perspective on why it matters. So we do that through our weekly show every Monday. We also do it through the newsletter, which is uh, the published press. It comes out every Tuesday and Friday. And that allows us to go a little bit deeper with three stories in each send. And what we see a lot of there is in the replies of that newsletter is people wanting to engage and reply back to our perspective with their perspective or 
in agreement or something else or some other news that they find important and want to hear our perspective on. And so I think today it's it's very similar where it's we are all a part of this one community. We all are creators. We care about what's happening in the world of creators. We care about these new roadmaps that are being developed, this career of you know, making money off of your own creativity, off of the thing that you're passionate about. But with all of this information coming out on an hourly basis, like what should we all be talking about? What are the, what are the highlight moments right. that actually are defining this space? So I think curation is incredibly important um, in a lot of these communities where I know I'm a part of the community, but I need help understanding what matters. Um, and I need help understanding why it matters. And then that gives me a basis to have a conversation with someone else in my community right. where I can have common ground with them because we both consume the same thing. We both heard the same topic. Um, it was reinforced to me that that topic matters. And now I can go and, and you know, pass it along to someone else in my community. Yeah. And I can see that that really shift from commenting on the conversation, helping people understand the conversation to at some point down the road, driving the conversation where this thing mm -hmm. might be happening in a very small area, no one's noticing it. And then you're saying, no, 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 this is what you should pay attention to. And that becomes right. the broader conversation in the creator community. Now, I'll also say that in both instances, this was not a, neither business or channel or content was this incredibly well thought out content strategy in advance of, hey, we're going to do it like this. We want. It was both times around. It was Colin and I, you know, growing up as lacrosse players, feeling like there was a void yeah. of a community where we could plug into. It was something we wanted. We were creating something for our younger selves and for our present selves um, that we wanted to exist. Second time around with Colin and Samir, it's the exact same thing. Like when we started on YouTube in 2011, as I mentioned, I didn't have that much information about how it worked. I didn't know what community I was a part of. I felt very isolated felt like I was on an island trying to do this as a career. And I wanted a hub where I could turn to, hear stories about how other people were doing it, get inspired. Um, you know, I loved shows like how I built this. I loved hearing about entrepreneurs, but I felt like they weren't covering the entrepreneurs that I was connecting with, people who are doing it through their own content or creativity. So, you know, over time, it was just, it was not a like, let's launch this channel about creators. It was a four-year process to find our content and find our voice through just repetition of making, 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 and making what we wanted to exist right. and what was interesting to us. And um, I think that's really important that um, you actually you actually do want to make what you're making and you care about what you're making and you would make it because for four years we did make it with like the Colin and Smear channel we uploaded to for four years without making money from it. And we really care about these stories. We found a format that works we are speaking to the community that we were always speaking to. It's just bigger now. Um, and we've been able to brand it in a way and package it in a way that it's becoming a business. But this is just something we wanted to exist. We are a part of this community. We felt like this show that we're making, we wanted to exist. So I think that's a really important part of, of creating for a community is that you're a part of that community and, and you deeply understand yeah. why it needs to exist. Yeah. Okay, there's a lot that I want to dig into there. I want to, sure. for people who don't know your story, I want to go through the lacrosse side a little bit um, before we dive in, kind of give that backstory. Mm -hmm. So you scaled the the lacrosse channel and that whole network until you exited. What did, mm -hmm. what did kind of that, like maybe the, the time period of first revenue through to, you know, actually selling the channel? What did that look like? 
Yeah. So, uh, you know, again, for first revenue in was just like creative projects. I think it was building a website for a pro lacrosse player. I think that was it. Um, and I think they paid us a thousand dollars to do that. Uh, and I, I remember there was three of us involved. Colin was one of them and Julian was our other um, partner in that. And I, I remember all of us being like, how crazy is it that someone's willing to pay us a thousand bucks to design their website? Yes. Um, and so I think, you know, that, that was the early stages. I don't know if I still have access to them, but I remember putting together a pitch deck for a brand showing them that we had 300 subscribers. And I remember being really excited about that and, and pitching to them saying that although we have 300 subscribers, I know that all 300 of them are your customers, mm -hmm. uh, because all we talk about is lacrosse. So like, it's, it's nearly impossible for them not to be interested in your product. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, I just remember knowing that very well in our pitches that, you know, if you got a million sports fans together, it's still not as powerful as our thousand lacrosse fans for you specifically. And that story was um, was very powerful. Our first like advertising agreements were more like custom content because there was no real culture around like integrations at the time. It was more, you come produce this thing and then you put it out on your own YouTube channel. And so okay. it was very like custom. We would fly all over to to produce something and then distribute it on the channel. And you know these deals looked like a thousand bucks here, two thousand bucks there. So not not enough for all of us to 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 get paid and make money. But where we did find revenue was in those like creative projects that we would do freelance um, freelance gigs that were in and out of lacrosse, just creative work that we could find. Now what was happening though was the community was building as the audience started building. I think. You know what was really helpful for us was we had a very tight connection with the platform with YouTube. YouTube uh, was very supportive of what we were doing. They were really interested in sports, and they had a um, a deep desire to become a, a, a home for sports. And one of their desires was being a home for live sports. And so we all got together and figured out how to live stream on the channel, and YouTube helped us with that. And one of the first things we did was go out and acquire live rights. And we went from, you know, uploading content that were like vlogs and um, highlights and news and analysis to becoming the largest distributor of live sports on YouTube. Um, and that really helped build the community because we were offering free live lacrosse. And there was a scarcity of that. You know, it was not on ESPN. It was not on um, any of the major networks. So we became the home from high school all the way up to professional lacrosse we were distributing on our channel. And you could watch the games live. And that was one of the biggest growth drivers because it's almost like these moments for the community to come together. Like appointment viewing allows for the community to actually <laughs> all come together at one point in time. And so there was a bit of a snowball effect in those first two years of we knew we wanted to upload a piece of content every single day. Sometimes it was a live game. Sometimes it was Colin and I hopping on and talking about what we thought about in the world of lacrosse. Sometimes it was um, you know, a highlight package. Sometimes it was a 15 second clip. Like It was all types of content. We just knew we needed the doors to open every day so, so the community could come in and talk. And so as the community started growing, I think there was a, there was a very tangible feel to it. I think YouTube knew it and YouTube was helping us tell that story quite a bit. They were connecting us. We were talking to people from UFC, from NBA, from other sports leagues because YouTube wanted us to tell the story of how to build a sports network on the platform. And that was really helpful for us and got us enough exposure to, you know, eventually a company called Whistle Sports picked up the phone and called us and said, 
you know, hey, what you guys are doing in lacrosse, like we believe the future of sports is going to be on social and we like what you're doing for lacrosse. We want to replicate that across all verticals. And you guys have, you know, a, a two and a half year head start um, figuring all of this out. So we want to buy your network uh, and we want to bring your team on to help us do the same. And I would say, to be honest, that was the, you know, it was, it was unbelievable from a validation standpoint because we, we were like, there was really hard times in those two years of understanding if we were wasting our time or not. The thing that kept us going was the audience and the audience's excitement in what we were doing and providing a value to this community. But it was hard because there was not much validation outside of that. And this moment was like incredibly validating and something that where we realized we were doing something of value and that there was a model here that could work. And, you know, selling the channel and, and selling the business and, and joining the company for us, of course, it was like an awesome moment of success and accomplishment. But more importantly, it was an entrance to like Colin and I always call this our MBA, where we we walked in and we learned how the business worked. This was a company that had raised a lot of money, had a lot of high stakes. We were employees 17, 18, and 19, and we had to make this work. And so now we went from being excited about growing an audience, finding odd jobs to make money, to being in a situation where we didn't have to do odd jobs anymore. We could focus 100% on the channel. We were surrounded by people who had experience in media, who knew how to sell. We had a legal team. We had a creative partnerships team. Um, and we got to sit in a room and in a, in a more relaxed manner, understand how the business worked and then apply that to what we were doing in lacrosse and then develop a model that could be replicated. Yeah. So, you know, from a decision-making standpoint on the acquisition, it was either that or keep doing odd jobs and, and uploading. It was a pretty simple choice because I knew that, you know, doing this would introduce us to the world of how this actually works, not how it worked in our scrappy, you know, startup way, but how this business actually works. Are you able to share any of the numbers or details from the acquisition or like what view counts were at the time or anything like that? Yeah, I think the channel, honest, I think the channel had like 80,000 subscribers Okay, at the time. I think our viewership was no more than, you know, it, it was, it was depending on, on the content. I think we were probably doing like 20, 30,000 views a video at the time. Outside of that, I can't share the number on the acquisition, but I will say like we all were like, what, probably the best part of it was that we all got salaried. And like, there was yeah. this like deep breath out of like, <laughs> oh my God, we, we, we're making money doing this. Um, you know, the acquisition from like a buying the channel, I don't think anyone knew how to price something like that. Yeah. And I think that was both, you know, in our favor and, and um, you know, also parts of it were, were disadvantageous that it was so new and fresh, but overall it was incredible. What year was that? That was 2014. Okay. Yeah. That's still, it's very early. <laughs> So fresh. Yeah. It was a net positive because of the fact that we got, you know, high level jobs doing what we wanted to do and that we were able to have like a liquidity event that, that made the past couple of years, like make sense. What was the, like for you, one of the biggest or a couple of the biggest takeaways from your time at Whistle Sports, right? You got to see inside how a bigger company works. You said it was your MBA. What, what were some <laughs> of those takeaways where you're like, oh, I don't think I would have learned that, you know, outside of uh, having this opportunity. I think um, I learned a lot about sales. That was one of the most important things. I was very close with the, with the chief revenue officer there who 
um, you know, now is at, at Barstool and, and um, I was very close with the CEO and, and the president and understanding in depth how to sell a media property was probably one of the biggest things I learned because that informs everything. That informs content, that informs your formats, it informs how you, you know, how you develop your, your, your platform. And, you know, one of the first things we did, once I started to understand that, you know, one of the most helpful things was that the company was also representing Dude Perfect, which was one of the biggest sports channels on YouTube yep. and still is today. And they had a very defined format, right? They had this trick shots format that just was so unbelievably replicable. And every company picked up the phone and said, we want a trick shot video with Dude Perfect. Hmm. And it was something that I started to understand from a format development perspective that although you know, social media is very new and people are consuming it very differently, there's still roots from television, from what we're all used to, that um, are required to make this a real business. And one of those was, was you know, developing a format, um, developing a process around that format where you could replicate it, developing, you know, rituals in the audience. As I mentioned, the Lacrosse Network was, we were uploading every day, but every day it was a different type of video. We stopped doing that. Right. We took a step back and said, how do we develop a show? And so similar to what we're doing today, we had a show that uploaded every Monday that broke down the most important news in lacrosse and our perspective on it. And when we did that, all of a sudden that show built a culture around it, built a community around it. It was called the weekly watch. And so what we would do is we would pull together all the biggest clips in lacrosse and put them out every Monday. And Colin and I would talk about the headlines and then clips from our community that, again, to call back to what we were doing earlier, on that show, we would call out what type of clips we wanted for the next episode for you to be featured. So nice. all of a sudden, everything we were doing got packaged into one format that, that made sense, that was sponsorable. You could have the weekly watch presented by Nike, which was a thing that happened. You could have this segment be presented by a company. You could have... Um, we were able to then back into a very clear-cut story of what we were selling, what was the product, what were the metrics around that product, what did the inventory look like. And for things that were like creative, which is so intangible, you have to make it tangible. You have to make it a purchasable product. And I'd say that was the first lesson in Whistle. And it's interesting because the business um, informed our format, which then made our creative better, which then made our whole experience as creators better because we developed consistency, a process around it. We were able to, after every Monday upload, say, how can we make next week's better? How mm -hmm. can we make it better? How can we make it better? How can we make it better? And then you know, what we would continue to do is develop new formats that would upload on the channel. Um, so rather than uploading random videos, we were developing series and formats that, that had a brand to them, had a culture to them, had a ritual to them. Uh, and the audience could latch onto the network. And that's when we started to see much bigger growth. Yeah, I'm just noticing it go from all of these random clips or like whatever, whatever we can find to upload today, because we need to upload yeah. every day, mm -hmm. uh, to the whole channel having a flywheel, the whole business having a flywheel. <laughs> uh, your actual yeah. your community engagement is feeding, you know, the weekly yes. show, is feeding the advertisers and on from there. And you're like, okay, I understand how this whole thing works in concert rather than yeah. being a sporadic set of things. I'd also say the second lesson that I learned um, around this is as creators, it's very confusing what your what your job is, especially in the beginning. Like your job is to create, your job is also to sell, your job is also to distribute, your job is also to be the content strategist, your job is to do all the things. And 
understanding what jobs we still we needed to do as creators and what jobs other people could do and developing that trust i think allowed us to understand you know what does it mean to scale and that was a really important lesson because when we stepped out we knew what we what we were building towards we knew the the org chart of what we wanted to build so the way we looked at it you know when we were when we were first starting i was the you know, CEO, I was the head of sales. I was, I was all the above. I was legal counsel. I was everything, um, you know, at, at that level. And then I had, you know, amazing, uh, partners and, and, and Colin and Julian to help me with the creative. And I was also the host. I was the talent. I was, it was all the above. Right. And so what I think we started to realize when we went into whistle was that being a creator, um, you weren't necessarily, you didn't need to be at, like at the top of your organization you actually could be more in the middle and you needed to be on the content strategy side. You had to be on, um, obviously on the creative side, you had to like deeply understand the audience and, and, and care about the content you were making. And you had to spend all your time doing that. And you could build, you know, an operations person, you could, uh, build out to a revenue person you could, and th those could be separate agencies. They can be in-house people, but you know, operations and revenue, I think were two things that we learned. We, if we didn't do, we could make better content. We could invest more yeah. in the format. We could invest more in the connection with the audience. Um, and so I think you start to learn, at least we did in that time, what we needed to do and what we could have other people help us with. Yeah. I, I like that because you've built a lot of structure, um, you know, in a, in a full business around, you know, not just the channel, but the newsletter and everything else. So let's dive into that. What did it look like to move on from Whistle Sports and and uh, go independent again? You know, there's this really interesting experience that Colin and I both had where we were loving this newfound freedom of being creators, of you know being less involved uh, on on the business side. Um, you know, still involved. We were still in every pitch. We were still in you know a lot of it, but we had so much support that we loved this feeling of being creators. And I think, you know, being, being 21 and starting that business and selling it at, at 23 and, and, or 24. And, and now, you know, at this, at this time being 27 years old and, and what I had, the only thing I had done in my career, or sorry, I think it was 26, whatever, it doesn't matter. But uh, the only thing I had done in my career was make, uh, make the lacrosse network and, and work in sports media. I think there's like a, natural developmental stage in your 20s where you need to experiment and explore that I was, as you know, being being in any startup, like you are laser focused. It's a blinders yep. on. You're doing one thing. You need to do it extremely well. You need to find what works and then, you know, replicate and scale. That one night Colin and I had dinner and we were just like, what if we were just creators that could make content about anything? And this was largely inspired by a, a movement in YouTube of, of people vlogging, specifically Casey Neistat vlogging, talking about his life and you know, talking about just anything he wanted to do and this kind of like flexibility and freedom he had that was very attractive and, and appealing to us. And I think there was a, there's a few moments in your career as an entrepreneur where you're lucky enough to have a level of naivete. And there was two moments for me. One was coming out of college thinking I could build a sports network myself. Uh, and two was this exact moment thinking that I should just rip the cord leave the company and start over from scratch um, with the confidence that within you know a month I would just build back up to the same you know revenue level we would build a brand and it would everything would be fine and we just decided we were going to leave and I remember when we told you know the 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 company and and 
you know, people started to learn. At this point, I think there was around 100 people in the company. And the speculation was that Colin and I had raised money to go do like a sports agency um, and take some of the clients and, and, you know, do something. And I remember hearing that. I was like, wow, that is so not what we're doing. Like we are literally going to leave and then just explore our creativity. And, um, you know, everyone around us was like, it's a pretty bad idea. Like my, I remember my dad being like, why would you do that? Why don't you just talk to the people at Whistle about whatever you feel like you're not doing, just try and do that because things were going really well. Like nothing was going, nothing was going bad. It was just like, I would say 98% what I wanted to do. I was getting, you know, paid very well to, to create YouTube content and and to develop, um, you know, formats and work with creators and work with brands. But I just had to explore. I had to, I didn't have a choice. I knew if I didn't do it then, then, then I didn't know when I would do it. And so Colin and I just left. And I remember that first week, there's like day four out of the company. Colin picked up the phone and called me and he was sitting on the beach and uh, he was like, hey man, what did we just do? <laughs> like, what are we doing? <laughs> and I was like, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm not positive. Like, I have no idea what we're doing. And we just decided to make. That was it. All we knew was we we wanted to make. And we got together and we created a channel called Colin and Samir. And we were like, we're just going to explore. We're just going to make here. And we just committed to uploading one video a week. And I think we were hit with a rude awakening at that moment where, you know, we had a show that about 100,000 people were watching every week. We uploaded our first video and 1,000 people watched it. And we thought the audience would carry over, not really thinking like, oh yeah, that's the lacrosse community. They want to hear us talk about lacrosse. They don't want to see our art films. And we started uploading these like very artsy video essays about Los Angeles and our ideas about life and you know, just anything that was happening in our head, we were making content about and thousand people were watching. And um, that was a very, very scary time. Um, it was both creatively liberating where we were so excited about the work we were putting out. We were pouring hours and hours into the work and then recognizing we had we did not have a community. We did not have any path to building a business. It was not going to be a seamless hey, we were doing this thing over here, now we're doing it over here, and it's the same business. Um, it was not that at all. And yeah, that that begun, I would say, some of the most challenging years of my career. Yeah. I, I mean, people can can dive in on the channel more and see like exactly mm-hmm. that path of, of building up. Yep. One thing that I'm curious about right now is what the flywheel looks like for you today in the business. You talked about the you know, the Monday show, the the weekly newsletter. But maybe you could break down sort of the content flywheel and then the revenue flywheel um, as those sure. come together. And so to make it a three-part question, because those are the worst, and we might as well just keep going. Um, but like a little bit about the team as well, because you've got, mm-hmm. you've built a whole team around this. Yeah. So, you, you, you know, you fast forward five years and somehow we figured it out. Um, yep. The only way I, I, I give this advice all the time, if you're lost or confused as a creative, the only way out is to create through it. That's it. Right. Um, I think that's that's you know scary advice, but it is the truth. Like we, the one thing we never stopped doing. If you look back at the past five years on the channels, we just never stopped uploading. Um, we just didn't. We just kept making, even in the lowest of lows. Like that was the thing that we will do no matter what, and yeah. we just kept creating. 
Um, today, how the flywheel looks, you know, one thing that we found to be really important is that, you know, in representing a community um, or creating content for a community, we paint everything through the lens of our perspective and our experience over the past 10 years of uploading content to, to YouTube and being creators. But we want to have a diverse set of voices. So I'd say, you know, one of the most important things we did around where the show is today is develop a writer's room. And that happens on Slack. It's about 15 different people from the creator space, um, from different facets of it, creators themselves, people who work mm -hmm. you know, with creators, people who are just enthusiasts and, and love mining you know, what's happening on, uh, in our space, uh, where every day, constantly, stuff's being shared in there and, and perspectives are being shared. And that, I think, was one of the most important things we did, where it used to just be in a vacuum of, of or not a vacuum, but just in a small space of just Colin yeah. and I going back and forth, talking about what we what we cared about in the creator space, and then we'd make a video about it. Um, but expanding that to include more voices, and I think our ultimate goal is actually to include more and more and more, allows us to have this diverse content diet where we are consuming stuff from our community from all different different places. From there, we kind of look at it as like a top of the content funnel where we can then decide where those pieces go. Right. So like here's the the stories we find interesting. And then we meet as a creative team here in in LA in person and talk about and brainstorm which one would make a good YouTube long form episode. What would make a good YouTube short? What would make a good tweet? What would make a good newsletter article? Um, and this all gets painted through the lens of our value prop, which is to educate and empower the next generation of creators. So I think that's a really important piece is that the, the, all the stuff at the top of the funnel has to pass through these different pieces. And I'll give you those. There's four specific pieces that it has to pass through. Number one, it has to be relevant to our audience. So first thing is everyone on the team has to deeply understand who the audience is. We define it as aspiring creators, career creators, people in the creator industry. And then we have a fourth bucket, which is non-believers, which is kind of like tomorrow's supporters, people who maybe have no reason to, to believe in the creator economy yet, but you know, through our content, they will convert. So we understand everything through those lens. Is this piece of content relevant to that audience? You know, Yes or no, that's our first checkpoint. Our next one is, does it deliver on the value prop? Is it educational? Can you actually learn something about how to be a creator? Can you learn something about how to work with creators? Can you learn something here? That's a really important piece. You know, we always say, what's the creator takeaway? What's the takeaway for the industry? How does, the, you know, what is the actionable takeaway from this story? If there isn't one, then it's, it doesn't really fit into our content. The next one, which I think is incredibly important and something I talked about in our first business well, is process. Does this fit into our process? Does it fit into one of our formats? And how can it very easily fit into either our writing schedule or our video schedule or our podcast schedule? Like if, if it doesn't fit into that, you know, it's a great idea, but it just might not work for us. Is there an example of something that you like made it past, it fit the audience, made it pass through their filters and then just didn't fit in the process? You're like, we want to do this, but it doesn't fit in the process. And so we're moving on. Yeah. A lot of times that's interviews. Okay. You know, like a lot of times we want to interview someone, you know, luckily what's interesting is early on, a lot of those didn't work. Creator interviews, creator interviews are fantastic. Um, we love hearing perspectives from creators. A lot of times it's really challenging because we want to do them in person. Um, you know, we can do them over, over Zoom or over Riverside. 
Yep. But one of the challenges is that an interview, the way we cut it is very straining on our team because we we like really, really invest in the storytelling of an interview yes. where we might record for three hours, but we're only putting out 35 minutes. And so it's actually way harder than doing an episode where it's just Colin and I and we can control the story. Um, you can't really control the story as well in an interview. And then additionally, like, you know, the reality of YouTube is it's all based on click-through rate, right? Are people going to click on this? Are they going to, is the audience going to find this interesting? And at scale, a lot of how our business works is, is viewership on YouTube. So the type of creator we can interview, who's going to, you know, be support supportive of, of click-through rate and something that at scale, a lot of people want to watch. There's a limited grouping yeah. of, of, of creators that that's going to, is going to hit all those buckets. That said, as we developed, you know, the, the newsletter, the published press, we are now including a lot of creator interviews there. And now we're starting to explore like, what does an audio show look like that's creator interviews? Because we think it's important, but doesn't right now fit into our video process. We were able to get it fit into our written process. Um, and so that's an example where there's a creator who reaches out, has an amazing story. We want to cover it. It doesn't work for the show, but it works for the press. you know, Or it doesn't work for the show, but it works for a YouTube short. And so it does have to funnel through this process to make sure that we can produce a best-in-class show every Monday. The last piece is monetization. So you, you start at the top, audience, value prop, process, monetization. Uh, from a monetization standpoint, we, you know, we're in the media business. We have to make sure that this story fits into one of our processes that is also connected to our monetization. So you know, does this fit into the published press? Great. You know, that's a monetized platform. Does it fit into the YouTube channel? Great. That's a monetized platform. You know, we have to evaluate stuff based on that as well. Yeah. I, I like that process because as a creator, you can get pulled around to so many different things, right? You can make literally yeah. anything on a Monday morning. You're like, what, what are we going to do? It could be, could be anything. And so having yeah. that to keep you narrowed in and refined, there's a lot of things that I write about that, or that I want to write about that aren't a fit as I follow a similar process. And mm -hmm. so then I like just put them on the ideas or the not now totally. board. Yeah. And you can evaluate that like every six months and go, oh, is this going in a direction where this would be more interesting because I've written down eight of these things that require a different format um, or right. require a different audience. But it's you're not like deviating from your plan every week in a small way. I think it's one of the the challenges of being a creator is, you know, we talk about this where, you know, creators start out with, you know, something they want to express. Like for us on this channel, we wanted to express the experience of being a creator. So a lot of what we told in the beginning was our story about being a creator. Then we started telling other creators stories. And over time, what ends up happening as you build a business around it is you go from being, you know, an artist with the desire to express and you start sliding over the scale over to being a distributor. So a distributor is like someone at, you know, Netflix or, or at a, a movie studio who's making a decision on what to make based on, you know, the audience. Right. That's why we see Spider-Man then next Spider-Man, then Spider-Man, then Spider-Man, because <laughs> yes. people are going to buy tickets to go see Spider-Man. Um, and so we also have to make decisions like that, right? Like as a creator, you're right in the middle of being an artist and being a distributor, probably with shading more towards a distributor hmm. because you're thinking in terms of, you know, what does the audience want to watch? And you actually have to play a dance between three things that for us define your content market fit. It's what does the audience want to watch? What does the platform want? And then what do you want to make? And if all three of those boxes are checked, you're, you know, you can really find a fit and a format um, that works. But two thirds of those boxes are 
you know, what the audience wants and what the platform wants. And, you know, I think that's where, as you start to develop a process around it, it can get really challenging, but you have to also want to make it. That's the one third part of that 33%. If that's not there, it's not going to work, but you have to think like a distributor right? to make this work. Is there a time that uh, there's things you've really wanted to make that just don't fit where you're like, you know, as a creator, I want to do this. And as a distributor, it doesn't make sense. All the time, all the time. But there's ways where you can start to think about how to distribute that, right? Like there's a lot of behind the scenes content mm -hmm. that's happening in our office that I find to be really interesting. I've always wanted to kind of vlog it and give a little bit of that like startup feel where you're getting yeah. a peek, you know, into our world, our process, how everything works. Right now, that would, if we added more content, it would strain our current team. Uh, we don't really have a distribution outlet because on the Colin and Samir channel, people are expecting the Colin and Samir show every Monday. They're not expecting vlogs. But you start to think, you know, if, if we can develop a process around that, I think it maybe could go on a secondary channel or maybe that could go in our Patreon or subscription, right? Maybe it could go um, in the published press more, which is actually something we're doing. We have a, a segment called Under the Hood in our newsletter where we talk about things that are working and not working in our own creator journey. So that's an example of, again, something that like I have a desire to tell a story. It has to go through this process of understanding, like, is it relevant to the audience to have a value prop? Which process does it fit into? Is it on one of our monetized platforms? Yeah. So on monetization, what's the breakdown between the different, like, what are the main monetization channels that you have now and, and what's the revenue split between them? The lion's share comes from sponsorship if not 100% uh, comes from comes from advertising and sponsorships those are split across different formats yep. um, but we are we are a partnerships business um, we have sold merch we've sold an nft we've sold a storytelling course but our business runs on partnerships and i think what's important is like anyone who's in the media business that's still the primary business model is yep. partnerships and so you know, for us, like partnerships on the Colin and Samir show, to be specific, I would say make up 95% of our revenue. So that that tangibly looks like every Monday when you watch an episode of the show, you will see an advertiser, you'll see a link in our description, you'll have a call to action. Um, and we like to focus on very relevant advertisers. All of our advertisers buy, you know, packages across multiple episodes. We like to have fewer advertisers that buy for longer periods of time so that we can tell more stories with them. We can develop them as characters in our universe. And we like to curate those advertisers in the same way we curate our stories, which are what matters to this community and why does it matter? And so if you look at our advertisers, they're, they're all um, relevant to creators yep. and how to turn your career uh, as a creator on, right? How to flip it on, how to turn it into a career. That's all of our advertisers. So the lion's share, 95% of our revenue comes from brand sponsorships. Our YouTube AdSense is like pretty, uh, pretty like minimal piece of that pie, but it's becoming more significant as our viewership is increasing. But we've never connected any part of our business to platform revenue. I just don't believe in it. I think it's too variable. There's yeah. too many things that are out of our control. So you know, we we put out a tweet. I think last year, or no, I know last year YouTube uh, from the platform we made one hundred and seven thousand dollars on one hundred and seven million views on the platform, and so. You know, that is now getting more significant. I think the majority of that revenue came in Q4 as our channel started to experience exponential growth, as the ad budgets are more significant in Q4. But, you know, we don't connect any part of our business to 
you're not saying now that I have this AdSense revenue, I'm going to hire yeah. someone. Like I'm going to use this to cover this person's salary and all that because it's just not predictable mm-hmm. enough. It's just not predictable. So we don't we we like to think of things in like monthly recurring revenue and and monthly yep. recurring expenses. And you know we're spending like I can be I can tell you just flat out like we 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 spend probably like around sixty to sixty five thousand dollars a month just to operate the business. Yeah, and so you know we uh it, it gets pretty significant we have 10 people that that work with us right now we have a growing now office space that that we need to house those people and uh we have equipment we have you know travel to different creators places we just we have a lot going on and um you know we have to we have to look at our our revenue and and our um partnerships in ways that that are supportive of that yeah i'm always interested in the in the team creative approach there's a lot of solo creators out there mm-hmm. and you've gone heavy on the team side and i think it it yeah. will result in a lot less money in the short term and a much more substantial business and a lot more money in the long term as you are mm-hmm. able to build out systems rather than you know like four or five years from now being like oh man as a solo creator i'm so burned out because i've been doing this grind for a long time but i had tons of profits in the early days or in the, let's say right. the middle period you want to comment on that side of it yeah, um, we are, I think we as creators are just naturally um, built for teams. Like Colin and I both also grew up playing team sports, you know, both playing lacrosse. And what's funny is we we talk about our office as like, it's a creative team. Like everyone has a different role um, in the episodes. Everyone has a different role on the team and we all have to work in concert. So I think from a just lifestyle desire perspective, my dream is to walk into a room of creatives and build things together. Like mm-hmm. that is that is just my dream life. So I naturally just gravitate towards team. I also think like having like cr- creativity is so much about collaboration. And with Colin and I being, you know, the talent, um, the guys who are also building the company, the entrepreneurs behind it, as we start to build and build and build, we also have to find ways to scale ourselves. And we wanted to do that early. So for example, like if we're getting on the road to go do a speaking engagement, or for example, in March, we're going to be at South by Southwest for a week. If it's just him and I, like we can't make a show every Monday. It's going to be really hard um, yeah. as we start to grow as, as thought leaders in the space, as, as creators in the space. So, you know, we wanted to build a foundation of how can we make our content on a weekly basis, no matter what. And that comes to... I think it comes back to that concept of process and being very process oriented. So, you know, we were making videos that only Colin and I could make. We were making videos that were vlogs that were very personal. We were making videos um, that had a different style every time. And, you know, we brought on an editor who was supporting us. And, um, you know, we were also making a podcast every week. And we started to realize that the podcast was something that we would make every week, no matter what no matter how busy our week was, we would record a podcast. And that's when we took a step back and said, well, now that we have some support, you know, someone to help us editing, what would it look like if we filmed the podcast and he cut the podcast? And so that was one of the first things we did, um, you know, and start to look at that. And then we looked at that and we said, could we do that every week? And so we started actually uploading that to a second YouTube channel um, once a week, filming our podcast and, and, and putting it out. And in weeks where we were struggling to put out a YouTube video, we were always putting out a, uh, a podcast on YouTube. And that's when Colin and I took a step back and said, 
I think we need to focus in on this podcast. I think this talk show format is the one that we can make and the one that we can build a team around because there's a foundation where it's relatively simple, right? It's you and I talking. It's a three camera setup. We know we can have help doing this. We know we can record this. We can go for a week and it can be edited. Um, And that gave us a foundation of what to build on top of, right? So it was us filming that, picking the topics, trying to, you know, make the storytelling work in a talk show format, putting B-roll on top, you know, putting graphics. And then basically every one of those desires became a new team member, right? A new role. Hey, we want to have more animations because we believe that as we're educating people, it's easier in visuals and we're developing curriculum that that require animation. So let's get an animator. Hey, we know we we need an audio engineer. Or, hey, we know we need uh, music in some of these parts. And then we're going to start selling 60-second ad integrations in this. We need someone to cut those ad integrations. So we basically you know, built templates for what the show could look like so that if we were gone, um, the show could still be edited and the show could still come out. And we knew what the next week's show looked like. Um, like I can tell you every Monday this year, there's going to be an episode of the Colin and Smear show. It'll have, you know, the same intro sound. It'll follow the same format. It'll be a, you know, it'll be about the same type of topics. And so that predictability allows you to layer creativity on top of it. You build like a foundation of a format that you know you can make, and then you can build on top of that. And I think we also know that in this world, it's not four episodes and then you've made it, right? It's hundreds of episodes. Yes. So if you if you need to produce hundreds of episodes, you need to know what those episodes are and you need to be able to have a foundation where you can just get improved 10% every time. You know, if you're reinventing the wheel every week, you're going to go a little crazy. Yeah, I think you see that in, I mean, any show that's on television, you see that where they have these set segments. Mm-hmm. Here they're going to their correspondent. Here, like whether it's, it's comedy or news or whatever else. They're putting it into a format that they can tweak yeah. rather than leave it up to chance. We just have a few minutes left. Yeah. I'd love to touch on growth for a second. The channel just hit mm-hmm. 500,000 subscribers. Congrats. That's a huge, huge milestone. Thank you. Um, two-part question here. What are the things, like, what's actually working to drive growth? And then maybe what's something that you thought would work that just did? I think to drive growth, like, the thing that we've always you know, thought about is just like, we, we, we care a lot about organic growth, but one thing that's happening is just like YouTube is a library. There's a compounding effect, uh, like compounding effect, right? Mm-hmm. And compound interest is an incredibly powerful force. Um, and so as we went through nine months of uploading the exact same format, you know, every Monday, people can watch multiple videos. And if they're interested in one, they'll likely be interested in another. So for example, over the we, we didn't upload for three weeks during the holidays and we grew from 500,000 subs to 534,000 subs uh, and we didn't upload. And so that means, and what we're seeing is like, and the, and the channel did seven and a half million views during those three weeks. So, and those views are on old videos, meaning like we're building an evergreen library of content. And that is something that's incredibly powerful about YouTube specifically. Uh, it's a search engine, but once someone finds it, the algorithm is going to recommend them similar content. And if your content follows the same format, it's easy to latch onto. It's about the same topics that will compound. It just will. And I think that's something that we've, we are starting to experience now is that every upload is not just, you know, providing value that week. It's providing value in like getting essentially archived into a library that can provide you value for the next 10 years. You know, Casey Neistat, for example, is still driving millions of views a month and he doesn't upload. 
um, but he has a library of content that's interesting. And so I think that from a growth perspective, that's why it's important to find a format and that's why it's important to be consistent because you can build a library that can pay dividends over long periods of time. In terms of what what we thought might work and hasn't, I don't know if I can think of something specifically. We have tried some paid marketing. Very little experiments in paid marketing does not work uh, for us at least. And maybe we don't know how to do it on yeah. YouTube, but I think that the most important thing, like I, I've just basically completely thrown that out the door and said, the most important thing for us is to produce content people actually want to watch and more importantly, people want to share. Uh, and then we have enough of it that they can watch five episodes, you know, in a row and, yeah. and never be, uh, never feel like there's a lack of, of content or value. Yeah, that's good. Um, okay. The last thing that I want to touch on is you've made this move, you know, starting with YouTube and then going to a newsletter. What were some of the things that you've learned? In that? Actually, I guess first, why make that move? Yeah. You know, why launch the newsletter? And then second, what have you learned in the process of getting the first, you know, 10, 15, 20,000 subscribers? Yeah. So for us, um, you know, similar to what I talked about with the podcast and the show, it was about, you know, there's, there's two things that it was about. One was covering more stories. YouTube mm -hmm. is incredibly specific. What you can make a YouTube video about, what you can build a thumbnail around is incredibly specific. Um, and that felt and feels limiting at times. And so we wanted a space where we had a direct relationship with the community that was interested and we could provide stories that the only barrier was if we had a, you know, a good subject line and had developed a good rapport with the audience that they would click and open it and read it. It wasn't a barrier of algorithms. It wasn't a barrier of title and thumbnail. It wasn't a barrier of, you know, view duration. It was a barrier of like, are you a part of this community? Are you interested? Then we are going to curate the stories that matter to you. So that was number one. Number two was around this, this idea of scale and being able to scale beyond our ability to create video. Uh, or create audio or beyond the voices of Colin and Samir and and add more perspectives in the room. We'll get there, but you know, even right now we have an awesome writer who who writes the newsletter every week. We have a team that that you know helps us edit it. Colin and I are still the the managing editors and very much uh, in the weeds of every word that gets sent out on a Tuesday and Friday. We are extremely involved. Um, but you know, we can do that. Like again, go back to a tangible example. When we're in at South by Southwest, I have no concerns about getting two, two or even three, if we're at that point at that time, newsletters out and covering six amazing creator stories that are providing value to our community and our audience. So that ability is really liberating because during that week, even when you think about our video side, we're not going to be in our studio. So that means we have to pre-record something. We're not able to react to any news that happens unless we do it in audio form or, or in written form. And so building that format that allows us to have a deeper connection with the audience, um, allows us to have a process that's reasonable, scalable. And then I just believe that like newsletters for me personally, like I'm a part of the newsletter community. I enjoy receiving newsletters. I enjoy reading stories. I enjoy curation. And I also think that newsletters support both rituals, routines, and identity where the newsletters that I'm subscribed to, if you look at my list of, of newsletters, um, they kind of tell you who I am and what I'm interested in. And when I open them, I like feeling like I'm part of that community. I like feeling like, you know, and, and, and being reinforced that this is, this is my identity and this is the community I'm a part of. And I also like the, the ritual and routine of like, for us, when we send on a Tuesday and Friday, if you're someone who opens on those days, 
you're grounded and you know it's Tuesday. And I think that's cool. And I think that's that's really fun. And like, you know, it's Friday and we're going to round up what happened in the week. So, you know, I think building those rituals and routines of like on Monday, you get the show on Tuesday, you get a newsletter on Friday, you get another newsletter and trying to now fill out the week of helping you build a, a content diet and a routine and feeling in touch with the community. That's That's what's important to us. Yeah, I love it. I particularly love how meticulous or deliberate you've been with building a business that supports the life that you want. You know, so yes. you have the team around you as a creator, you you know that like one on a day-to-day basis, you want that in-person studio where you can show up and you can yeah. work with a creative team, but then you want to build a system that lets you not be in the studio, that lets you go to South by or somewhere mm-hmm. else uh, and have all of this still work. So it's good. That that's like lifestyle design, I think is so important for creators because there's a lot of creators, even especially us, our experience when we stepped out and had this vision of an aspirational lifestyle being solo creators, it was really lonely. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was really scary and and isolating. And um, I think we quickly recognized that's not what we wanted. We actually wanted to be a part of a team. We actually wanted to have an office to go to. We just weren't the guys who were gonna be, yeah. you know, fully remote and flying around and and you know, doing, doing things like that. Like we wanted a home base. So I do think like writing down what's important to you as a creator is a really good exercise. Like what we do this thing called the perfect day where we regularly will update it. And both Colin and I will just write down what does our perfect day look like? And I'll write it from morning to night. Like I wake up, I have, you know, a slow morning where I can have a cup of coffee with my wife. I can go on a walk. I can journal. I can read. I can walk into our office. I can you know, brainstorm with our team. I can produce a show. I can edit the news. Like there's certain things that I think just writing down what's important to you uh, and then building your, we're fortunate enough to now build our business around what's important to us, but we did it. We did this exercise even when we didn't have a business and we couldn't figure anything out. We just were trying to manifest what we wanted all of this to become. And Colin and I had coffee on Saturday and said like, I can't believe this is it. Like we did it. This is, this is what we always wanted. It's a good feeling. It's it's really fun to get to as a creator, and and uh, I think through your content, through my content, like we're trying to do the same thing of helping <laughs> as many other creators get to that point where they can be like, yeah, I'm spending my time the way I want. I'm earning my money the way that I want, and I'm creating the things in the world that I'm really proud of. So yeah, uh, where should people go to subscribe to the newsletter, the channel, everything else? So uh, if you want to subscribe to the newsletter, it's thepublishpress.com. Uh, you can sign up there. You'll get an email every Tuesday and Friday. And if you want to check out our content, just search Colin and Samir. You can find us on on YouTube, um, cross platforms. But if you want to watch the videos, it's every uh, every Monday on YouTube. And you can also listen, whether you listen on Spotify or Apple or however you listen to podcasts. Sounds good. Cool. Samir, thanks. For, so, ugh, I can't even talk. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. This is awesome. <laughs>